All right, would you take the Word of God this evening with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 26. Exodus and chapter 26, as you turn there, we are taking each one of, uh, whether it's the veil or the furniture that is inside the tabernacle, each one of those individually, and they're dealt with uh, separately in the Scriptures. And as I've made the point that everything points us to Jesus Christ. Uh, we've uh, spent the time, if you remember what uh, came uh, first. Now it's covered, but the first thing we talked about was the ark. It's called, first of all, the ark in uh, chapter 26. That's in chapter 25. That's the first thing that's mentioned uh, about the tabernacle. The materials are talked about, but the first piece that is talked about and the design of it uh, is the ark which is also referred to as the Ark of the Testimony. On top of the Ark would sit the mercy seat with the two cherubims. And it's between the cherubims that God would commune with man, that God would speak to man, that the glory of God uh, would be. And so that's the first thing we noted, and we understand by that, uh, that the tabernacle was not dealt first. The Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God. And so the, the, the tabernacle was built for the Ark, not the Ark for the tabernacle. Uh, after that, we talked about the table of Shubrat. And by the way, in the ark, we see that not only is Jesus Christ the ark, inside of the ark, uh, you would have uh, the, the tables of stone, you would have the bread, the manna, uh, and you also had Aaron's rod that budded. Jesus Christ, he fulfilled the law uh, in Aaron's rod that budded. Remember that whole scene was about uh, those who said, well, uh, God speaks to other people than through God's servants, and there was a, a contention going on between Aaron and others. And, and finally, uh, there was a sign that if you bring Aaron's rod and his rod budded, it's a sign of the resurrection, uh, that he has authority, that life came from death. Uh, and then the, the bread shows us that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Uh, the mercy seat that would sit as the cover of the ark uh, that mercy seat is also a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the place of communion. It's the place of fellowship. It's the place where God is going to commune with man. And that's the place where the blood, and we'll see that later, that the blood would be sprinkled upon. The blood of innocence would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat, picturing Jesus Christ. Then we talked about the table of shewbread. If you go into uh, the tabernacle on the right-hand side, on the north side, you would have the table of shewbread. And we learned that the table... Is, represents fellowship, and we learn that Jesus Christ is that table. Jesus Christ is the one who brings fellowship, and then the bread on the table is also a picture of Jesus Christ because Christ is the substance, the very substance of our fellowship with God. And then if you turn on the other side, on the south side, you would see, by the way, you have east, north, south, and west. And by the way, this is not for the west family. This is for west, as in the opposite of east, all right? That's for Hosea back there. Just want to make sure that that was clear. Um, and so uh, we, we talked about the, the candlestick, and the, the, the reason why the candlestick was given was to give light to the tabernacle. If you notice, there's no windows. There would be no light during the day, during the night, and so that light would run 24-7. Uh, uh, they would refill the oil in the morning, in the evening, and that's part of the service. We'll see that later. But the point is Jesus is the light of the world. And uh, we saw that the uh, almond buds that adorn uh, the candlestick, uh, that's actually that almond tree is the first tree that blooms in the spring in that part of the world. 
which is a, 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 a picture of, of resurrection, of life, and that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Uh, so that's not a mistake that that's the bloom that's used on that candlestick. And then after we looked at those sp specific pieces of furniture, we go immediately to the curtains on the top. Notice we, don't, we didn't talk about the structure yet, but the curtains. We talked about the uh, four layers. There's the uh, white fine linen uh, adorned or embroidered with the colors of blue and purple and scarlet. We're actually going to see those colors tonight with the veil. Uh, then there's the second layer, which is the uh, goat's hair. Uh, then there is the uh, ram skin that is dyed red, and then the badger skin that you see on the outside. So do you uh, those who stand on the outside don't see the, the beauty of everything that's on the inside. Uh, what's on the outside, by the way, we talked about how not only is the ark a picture of Christ and the table of shoe bread and the candlestick a picture of Jesus Christ, but the very curtain itself is a picture of Jesus Christ as well, and specifically who He is and His ministry on earth. By the way, the Bible says very clearly in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says uh, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tent or tabernacle. Jesus Christ tabernacled among us and when He came to earth. And so we talked about all of those things. And then last time we talked about the frame for the tabernacle which is the place, it signifies that the place here is a place that God wants us to enter into. We are invited into the presence of God. We are invited into communion with God. That's why the tabernacle is raised up. That's the whole point of the boards, is to raise the tabernacle up so that man could enter into the place where God dwells, so that man could enter into the place where he can have communion with God. And uh, we dealt with the boards. Uh, they overlay all, all on, on the outside. And this uh, evening, we're going to look on the inside. So I'm going to remove here the curtain on the outside. And this evening, we're going to look at the veil. Now, there are two veils. There is a veil that sits here, and there is a veil here. Those are the entry points. This is the entry point into the holy place. And this veil is the entry point into the Holy of Holies. And so we're going to talk here about those two veils and what they signify. And, and, and I'll just say to you at the onset that the veil is a picture of Jesus Christ as well. And so we're going to look at that this evening. So if you notice in the Word of God, Exodus chapter uh, 26, I think we should take a, I think there's a replica of the tabernacle in Lancaster. Maybe we should take a trip after we're done this series. Make sure they got everything right up there. I don't know. We'll see. But Exodus chapter 26, if you notice with me, let's begin reading in verse uh, 31. Exodus 26, verse 31, And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen of cunning work. With cherubims shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold, their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes, that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy holy place. 
and thou shalt set the table without the veil, and the candlestick over against the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south, and thou shalt put the table on the north side. Now, the reason why he mentions those pieces that have already been mentioned is we don't know where they're going to go because the temple has not been constructed. We, when they were given, the frame and the curtain was not discussed yet. That was before. So now that the tabernacle is actually constructed, here's where those pieces are going to go. And we have only the pieces that are mentioned. The ark is going to be into the Holy of Holies, which is here. The table of shewbread and, and showbread, shewbread, both, or the candles are going to be in the holy place. Dividing the holy place from the Holy of Holies would be this veil. And notice the veil's purpose is to divide the holy place from the Holy of Holies. We continue reading in verse 36, And thou shalt make an hanging for the door of the tent. So now the hanging for the door of the tent is the curtain that's on the outside of the tent. Of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen wrought with needlework. And thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of shittim wood and overlay them with gold, and their hooks shall be of gold, and thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. So here we find, as we look to the scriptures, uh, the reason why this veil, specifically the veil that's in the, inside the tabernacle, dividing the holy place from the holy of holies, we notice with me in verse 33, and thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes, that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall, notice the word, divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. So I'd like to preach this evening on, on this thought, the veil to divide. The veil to divide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. And Lord, I, as we just uh, heard just a moment ago by way of testimony, we, we are grateful and we are amazed at the great salvation that you've procured for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, if anything, this evening as we leave this place, that we might uh, once again be renewed to a grateful spirit for the salvation that we possess, which could not be attained by ourselves, uh, which could not uh, be procured by any other man but it was procured by God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that You would uh, help us, uh, instruct us this evening concerning this tabernacle and specifically concerning the veil which divides. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look here at the veil, if you notice with me, the veil is intended to be a dividing factor in the tabernacle and I'm trying to take this here progressively the way that it's given in the scriptures because if we take it the way it's given in the scriptures we know that there is a ark of the covenant with the mercy seat that's the place where God will communion with man and then we have the table of shoe bread and we have the candlestick uh, a place of fellowship and a place of light and those are picturing Jesus Christ then we have uh, the uh, the, the, the actual tabernacle, which is the first curtain that sits on the top. And then all of those layers, the tabernacle is erected, so we are invited in to the place of communion with God. But immediately now that we can enter into the holy place, now that we can enter into the tabernacle, God wants us to know that there is a division. 
Now, now, by the way, this is not inconsistent. God invites us in, letting us know that He wants to have communion with man. But as soon as we come in, He says there is a division. I want to have communion with you, but I cannot. I want to have communion with you, but there is enmity. There is a place where man cannot come unto and what is that place? It's the Holy of Holies into the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony and the Mercy Seat that that place man is forbidden to come into. What place? The place of communion. So how do we reconcile this truth that we are invited in because man wants to have communion, but as soon as we come in, we recognize that we're, we, we're not worthy to have communion with God. Because there is a dividing factor in this tabernacle. Now, if you notice, as we study the scriptures, there are some things that we've already alluded to that we uh, that brings back to remembrance. In verse thirty-one, he speaks of the veil initially and how the veil is going to be made up. He mentions immediately the veil that's going to be of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen. Now, it's interesting to note that there's a difference in the order with which we find the curtain. If you remember, the curtain was made of fine twine linen first, then of blue and of purple and scarlet. This time he says it's going to be of blue, scarlet, and uh, purple and scarlet, and of fine twine linen. The fine twine linen comes last, indicating to us that the colors would dominate in the veil more than they did on the curtain. Uh, that the fine twine linen, perhaps the white, would be less visible, that the colors would be more present in the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, we already dealt with those colors. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but the veil itself is a picture of Jesus Christ. The reason for that is because of the scripture I just read at the beginning of the service. We're going to read that again in Hebrews chapter 10 in just a moment. But if you remember, the blue speaks of where Jesus Christ came from. He came from heaven. The purple speaks of the throne that belongs to Jesus Christ. And the scarlet speaks of the cross or suffering. And we find here that those same colors that have been employed for the curtain are employed here uh, for this uh, veil that stands between, uh, that stands to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. And the same colors actually would be employed on the door for the tent. That's on the outside as well. Now, as we look here at this curtain, it's picturing for us Jesus Christ, but it is not just that there is those colors that are similar to the curtain for the ceiling, but he says at the end of verse 31, with cherubims shall it be made. So just as the curtain for the ceiling was adorned with cherubims, so the veil is also going to be adorned with cherubims. I invite you to see at the end that you'll find a drawing of the cherubims there or whatever representation somebody, but there's the wings there. We know that cherubims have wings. And so that uh, stands on the veil, and you can see that after the meeting. I don't invite you to do that at this particular moment, but you can see it at the end. And so the cherubims here, uh, immediately we, we, we think about the cherubims, and we see them in the ceiling, but re remember here that the whole point of the veil is to divide. It, it is to separate. It is to put a difference, it is to put a difference between the holy of holies and the holy place. 
Now, if you look at this whole uh, tabernacle, uh, you have the various places, but you have the Holy of Holies. No man could enter into this place. Then you have the holy place. The only one that could enter into that place were the priests from the tribe of Levi. That's a limited group. Then you go to the outer court. That's a broader group, but not everybody could go into the outer court. And then outside of that, that's where everybody stood. And so you find here that there's level, but the, the, the closer you get to God, the more restrictive it becomes and to finally, it is all the restriction that no man can enter into the Holy of Holies. And so we find here those steps of separation. Although we are invited in, we find that there's lines that are drawn that we must be aware of. Now we'll look at the other ones now, but right now we're focusing on the veil. And what stands as a representation between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place are cherubims. Now, immediately our mind has to think, and I, I, if you're a Bible student, uh, if you actually came to Sunday school, uh, we're going through the doctrine of angels, and we talked about the different hierarchy of angels and the different types of angels and what they do, and so we talked about the seraphims and the cherubims. Pretend that you didn't hear anything for just a moment. If you come to this point in the book of Exodus, there's only a number of times that cherubims have been mentioned. And so let's take it chronologically. Let's pretend we've, it's the first time we've read the Bible. We, we, we are learning for the first time. The first time that it's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 3. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. We uh, see that cherubims are mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Genesis chapter 3 is the temptation, and we see that Eve took of the fruit, Adam ate as well, and God, uh, who usually and habitually came and communed with man, was looking for Adam and Eve, and they were hiding because they were ashamed. They had sinned against God, and so God then pronounces a curse, and in the midst of this curse, there's, as I mentioned this morning, there is hope. Uh, the, the woman would be in suffering. The man would suffer. The serpent also would be under the curse. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. He speaks to the woman in verse 16, to Adam in verse 17. And notice he mentions in, if you go down to verse 22, and the Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the from whence he was taken. And so God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. The place that God had provided, by the way, it was the place of communion. It was a meeting place. It was not just a garden. It was a meeting place between man and God. And he kicks man out of that. He drives him out. And verse 24, notice here what God brings in between himself and man. Verse 24, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden, what? Cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. This is the first mention in all of the scripture concerning the cherubims. And the first thing we learn about the cherubims is that they are used as a way to divide. What did they divide? They divided God and man. 
man could no longer come into the place of communion with God, a cherubim stood in the way. Now, if you read all throughout the book of Genesis, you will not read about any cherubims. For the first 24 chapters of Exodus, you will not read about any cherubims. The next time in all of the scriptures that you read about the cherubims is Exodus 25, the tabernacle. Now, we're in Exodus chapter 26, but we've already read about the cherubims. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus chapter 25, and notice verse 18, here's the next time in Scripture that cherubims are mentioned, and they concern the mercy seat. Notice with me verse 18. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherubim on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. So here's the... The first time we read about the cherubim is in the garden. It was about a separation. Uh, the second time we read about the cherubims are concerning the mercy seat in between the cherubims as their wings outstretch. I have the Ark of the Covenant here with the mercy seat. The wings outstretch over and they touch. They meet together. And in between the cherubims right there is where God would commune with man. This is where the glory, the Shekinah glory of God would be manifested. This is the place where God is going to speak to man. The next time we read about them is when we read about the curtains. In chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work. Shalt thou make them. And so here we read about the cherubims. And so the cherubims from the inside curtain, if the priest would lift up their, their heads, this is what they would see, a, a design of cherubims. Now, there's no description of the design, but evidently they, they knew what the cherubims looked like. God gave them wisdom to know that. We don't have the wisdom to know that. There's not really, a, a, apart from the wings, there's not a description as far as their visage is concerned or how tall they were. We don't know any of those things. But we know it's cherubims adorned. As the priest would look up onto the ceiling, they would see that the ceiling was adorned with the cherubims in colors of blue and purple and scarlet. And the next time we read about cherubims is with the veil. The first time, the cherubims separate man from God. Since Genesis chapter 3, if the Garden of Eden was the place of communion and man was driven out of that, separated by the cherubim, thus far in all of, uh, in all of the scriptural revelation, there has been no place where man has had free access to communion with God. There's been instances when Abraham spoke, when God spoke to Abraham, or to Jacob, or to Isaac, or to Moses at the burning bush at Mount Sinai. But there hasn't been a location or a place where man has been invited to come and to have communion with God, to enter into the presence of God. And here we're brought to the tabernacle, and as the children are instructed, by the way, they know by tradition what's been passed along, and so they would know that the first time that any cherubim is mentioned, is when the cherubims are mentioned in the garden, separating God and man. And now they're uh, putting these things for the tabernacle. They're, 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 Moses is relaying the words about the veil and how they're going to make the veil. And he says, now you're going to adorn the veil with cherubims. Separation. 
the place of communion. See, when they hear about the ark of the testimony, they're thinking God wants to have communion. That's wonderful. Hooray. God wants to have communion with man. But then we read a little further and he says, now there's going to be a veil. And man is going to be prohibited in coming into the holy of holies, just like man was prohibited from going, coming into the garden and was separated by the cherubims. So the cherubim here is a symbol of separation between God and man. No doubt they guard the glory of God. We've talked about that extensively. But in another way, they separate, they stand as a separation between God and man. Now, in as we proceed, if you notice, go back to Exodus chapter 26. So he says... In, um, in verse 32, And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon their four sockets of silver. Again, same most of the, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of shewbread, was constructed the same way. There was the wood, and then the wood was overlaid with gold. We talked about, uh, speaking again of the two natures of Jesus Christ, His humanity and His deity. And notice what he says in verse 33 as he continues, And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes, and thou, that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil. Notice what he says, and I want to make careful attention here. He says, within the veil, now that the veil has been erected, now that it's been hung, now that the place of separation has been established, now bring in the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And notice verse 34. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Now it's interesting to note here that he mentions those two separately. He says, now, when you uh, put forth, when you hang up the veil, then you're going to bring the ark and you're going to put it in the holy of holies. And then once you've put into the Holy of Holies, then you bring the mercy seat and you put it on the Ark of the Testimony, uh, signifying, as we talked about previously, that the Ark of the Covenant is uh, one piece, but there's two parts to it, and those parts can be thought of as separately. The bottom part is uh, uh, we have, right, Christ fulfilled the law. Uh, he is the resurrection. He is the bread of life. Uh, but how would all this take place? It would take place through substitution, through an offering, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that he who was perfect, he who was the Almighty, would die for the sins and would present himself as a sacrifice for mankind. And so we, we, we talked about that, but now here we have the veil that separates uh, the ark of the testimony with the mercy on top and man cannot come in. It is a place of division, a place of separation. If you notice here, if we look later, turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Because instruction is given later concerning the, the, this separation between the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, if you read through the book of Leviticus, it's interesting that it is how man is to administer the service into the Holy of Holies. Now, it's going to be once a year with blood sprinkled, and he's supposed to wear a certain garment, and we'll talk about that. But it comes on the heels of, as he mentions, Aaron's sons being killed by God. If you notice, Leviticus 16, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, now, uh, when they offered before the Lord and died. Now, that happened back in Leviticus 10. 
So that's quite a bit before. It was back in Leviticus 10, in verse 1, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. That's chapter 10. We come to chapter 16, and he says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the sons of Aaron. So that's a lot of chapters in between. But this message happens on the heel, the entrance into the Holy of Holies happens on the heel of the sons of Aaron dying. Those, by the way, who had appointed, have been appointed to the service of the tabernacle. If Aaron dies, do you know who's supposed to take over this high priest position? to once a year come into the Holy of Holies, Aaron's sons. They're the next ones in line. Well, God kills them. Why? Because of a disregard, a disregard for the holiness of God. So Leviticus chapter 16, we're not going to read the whole chapter for, for sake of time, but Leviticus chapter 16 is about the Day of Atonement and how the high priest is to once a year come into the Holy of Holies, and how exactly he is supposed to do it. Now notice verse 2. We just read a summary. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat. So he is not allowed to come in. Tell that to Aaron. Now again, I want you to think about the mindset. We already know this information, but think about how it comes to those who are going to be participating in the ministry of the tabernacle. God says, there's the ark. It's the place of communion. I want man. I want to commune with man. But then there's a veil separating the holy of holies from the holy place. And then God tells Moses to tell Aaron, just so you know, Aaron, God wants to have communion, but you can't come in here. You're not allowed. Now, what do you have to do in order to come in? So he says, uh, talk about the mercy which is upon the, the ark, that he die not. So if he comes in, he dies. It is a death sentence for Aaron. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So God says, I'm going to appear on the cloud upon the mercy seat. That's the place where I want to commune with man. Just so you know, Aaron's not allowed. Tell him that. Uh, if you go down uh, verse Leviticus 16, verse 18 and 19, he says, and he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord. And we'll see that that's the brazen altar. If you notice that altar outside of that tabernacle in the outer court. And make an atonement for it, and shall take the blood of the bullocks and of the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood uh, upon it with his fingers seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And we know here that the Aaron is going to not only sprinkle the blood on that, but he's going to have a bowl with the blood collected, and he's going to go into the holy place, and he's going to proceed and get closer to the holy of holies, the place where he's not allowed to come into, but he's got to do something before he comes in. He's got to dip his fingers in blood, and he's got to sprinkle blood on his vesture so that he recognizes that he is not worthy to come in. Moses had already told him, you can't come in. If you come in, you die. But Aaron has to do this. He has to sprinkle blood on his vesture before he comes in so that he recognizes he, he, he's not allowed, but God will permit it this one time based upon an atonement. 
based upon innocent blood. And so he would go into the Holy of Holies, and then that same blood, he would dip his finger, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And he would only do that once a year. Outside of this one time, Aaron would not be permitted, nor any other man would be permitted, to enter into the Holy of Holies. We read in Leviticus 16.2 that the Holy of Holies was a restricted place. We read that the Holy of Holies was a holy place. And we read that the Holy of Holies was a place of death. A place of death. Now here is what, what we, we, we learn here. God wants to have communion with man. But man is entirely unworthy to have communion with God, although God desires it. And that if man seeks to have communion with God based upon his own merit, of his own accord, on his own terms, that he is slain by God himself. That's the message. We say, well, how, how do we reconcile all of this? Well, that's where the veil comes in. What, what is this veil all about? Well, the veil is a picture for us of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the indication. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. In Hebrews, now, there are many references to, um, in the book of Hebrews, to the veil. Um, actually, let, let, let me take you through the book of Hebrews so that we can look at that. So, before we get to Hebrews chapter 10, go back with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We read about the ministry of Jesus Christ. By the way, the book of Hebrews is, is there. This is the message of Hebrews. Chapter 1, Jesus Christ is better than angels. Chapter 2, 3, and 4, Jesus Christ is better than Aaron. He is better than Melchizedek. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is to tell us that Jesus Christ is better than anything. Uh, in, in every respect. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, notice verse 14. Notice the language he uses. Although he doesn't mention specifically the veil here. Notice what he says. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Notice here. Jesus is passed into the heavens, our great high priest. The idea in the mind here is that the high priest, he would what? He would pass into the Holy of Holies, the place where he was not allowed. Jesus Christ for us is passed into the heavens, the place where we are not allowed. Uh, go to chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and notice with me in verse 19. Um, well, notice verse 18 says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, uh, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. The hope that we have here, the picture is in Christ, is that we have entered now within the veil. And he's not talking about this curtain. He's talking about the veil in the tabernacle. Separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Go to chapter 9 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. He says, Neither by the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the what? 
the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so we see that we gain an entrance in Jesus Christ. Now go to chapter 10. In chapter 10, Notice verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the what? The holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. Through the veil. That is to say his what? Ah. There, there we have the connection. We have the direct statement that links the veil itself to be a picture of Jesus Christ himself. That we, as believers now, uh, we have been granted entrance into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a new and living way because we didn't used to have that way. The children of Israel didn't have the capacity to enter into the holy of holies. And we enter now through the veil. And he says, which is to say, what is this veil? It's the flesh of Jesus Christ. In other words... The very fact that Jesus Christ shed his blood is what gives the believer entrance into the holy of holies. And so he says, verse 21, And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We'll talk later about how the high priest is a picture also of Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. But the reference here is that the high priest would sprinkle on his vesture in order to, to have entrance. But here he says that by the blood of Jesus Christ, our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. And the picture there is the blood that would be poured on the vesture. So we have entrance in Christ on the basis of his blood that was shed for us. Uh, go back to Hebrews chapter 7. He speaks directly of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. He says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. You see, we have a direct reference that the veil itself, the entrance into the Holy of Holies, is a picture of Jesus Christ Himself, noting that the only way that we can have entrance into the presence of God is by Christ, through Christ because of Christ. There is no other way. You see, there is one God and one mediator between God and man and man and man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. And we'll see, we not only have been invited into the outer court, we've been invited into the holy place, and then we've been invited into the holy of holies. There is, for the believer, there are no restrictions to God. They've been taken out of the way. 
This tabernacle has been done away. The fence has been done away. Uh, the, the, the door of the tabernacle has been done away. And the veil, which is Christ himself, is he who grants us entrance. And it's been taken away. It's gone. You say, well, what do you, what do you mean by it's gone? Well, let, let me give you a, a few verses. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. <clears throat> and uh, notice with me in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, notice verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11, he says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, look, at the tabernacle, you were on the outside. By the way, you weren't even in the holy, of, uh, holy place. You had no ministry. You were completely out. You, not, you weren't even inside, invited inside the, the outer courts. You were completely on the outside. You were an alien, completely removed. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, are made nigh, here it is, by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Who? Christ. He is our peace. Notice, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now here the middle wall of partition, no doubt, uh, is the holy place, but it's also this separation. It is this separation, and it is finally the ultimate separation between God and man. It is this separation that is to say the veil. And so he says, God in Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Notice verse 15, having abolished in his flesh. Remember the veil, that is to say his flesh? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances to make, of, uh, to make in himself of twain one new man shall making peace and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were, brought, that were made nigh. And so in Christ Jesus, here is we all, we all used to stand on the outside of this tabernacle. But Jesus Christ sent his son. We were not part of any of this. We couldn't come into the courts. We couldn't come into the holy place. We could not have communion with God. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and He brings us in. And He brings us and lets us serve Him. And He gives us access into the very place and the presence of God. We've been invited in. The, 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 the wall of partition has been taken out of the way. The enmity has been slain by the cross. We've been, noticed. we who were afar off have been made nigh. Verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, let's look and see what happened when Jesus was crucified. Turn with me to the book of Matthew in chapter 27. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27. Uh, I believe if you would study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that there are... Seven sayings on the cross but that Jesus Christ said. Uh, or seven sentences, not words, but, but uh, expressions, things that he said. One of those we find in Matthew chapter 27, we find what happens subsequently to what he said. So if you uh, notice with me, 
Let's pick it up in verse 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In fulfillment of the psalmist. These would be the very words of Messiah when he would die on the cross. And Jesus Christ said those very words on the cross. Jesus, according to Isaiah, was forsaken of God. How could he be forsaken? Because he became sin for us. Some of them that stood, verse 47, there when they heard that, uh, heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let it be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And so at that moment here, Jesus Christ dies. He, he yielded up the ghost. No one took, him, took his life from him. He laid it down of himself. And the moment he died, notice what happens in verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And so we see here this miraculous event happen. But the point is, what is it that happens that the moment that Jesus Christ dies ends? And some people uh, now get into the, they say, well, see, the, the veil of the temple is went in twain from top to bottom. Uh, but that, that's because of, of the, the earthquake and, and the rocks ran and so there was a shaking and so the veil ripped and, and so forth. No, that's not what happened. He mentions that the veil of the temple was rent twain before the earthquake happened, before anything supernatural happened in that moment. In other words, I believe here that at the very death of Christ, because of the book of Hebrews that says that we are able to enter within the veil, that is to say His flesh, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when Jesus Christ was satisfied that our sins was punished on the cross of Calvary. At that very moment, when Jesus Christ died for our sins, God Himself ripped the veil in twain. And the Bible says it was from the top to the bottom to show us that man didn't rip the curtain down, but it was God Himself by His very power who says, I, I've been at enmity with God. I've been at odds with man for, for all of those years. I, I, I've had no communion with man. Man is not worthy to come into my presence since the very moment in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 when the cherubim separated God between man and I, I had a, uh, the, the, the tabernacle and the temple and those... Uh, expressed my desire to have communion with, with man and to, to speak to man, but man had to recognize that he couldn't come into the Holy of Holies because he was sinful and he was not worthy to come in. And, and yet when he sent Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, he is not like a man who is a priest. He is the great high priest. He is separate from sinners. He is made higher than the heavens. He's completely different. And when he died as a sacrifice for our sins, God said, at that moment, I'm satisfied. At that moment, the enmity has been slain. The middle wall of partition that was in between us was taken out of the way. And God now says, now, now, you can have communion with me unrestricted because of Christ. The wall of partition between us 
has been taken out of the way. The enmity has been slain because of Christ. Now, this is very important. Pay attention. It is not, it is not, by the way, you would go into the holy place and the priest would say, wow, that's beautiful. Look at those colors. Look at the cherubims. You think about the beauty. And if, if the, the veil is a picture of Jesus Christ, the priest might be uh, amazed at, at, at the beauty of the veil. But let me emphasize this very clearly. It is not... It is not the beautiful life of Christ and beholding His beautiful life that we can enter into the presence of God. It is not by us attempting to imitate Christ that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. It is not by the observance of rules for daily living that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. It is not by living a religious, devoted life to God that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. The only reason why we can pass into the Holy of Holies is because the enmity between God and man has been taken out of the way. It's been completely done away with. Any such attempt, the priest would come in and says, wow, look at that veil. And if that's a picture of Jesus Christ, well, I'm going to behold the beauty of the veil. I'm going to follow the life of Christ. I'm going to try to live like he lived. I'm going to try to follow his teaching. None of those things can bring you into God. You say, well, what is it that brings me in? Jesus Christ. Through his death. Through his propitiation through His blood, we have been made nigh. You see, any attempt to live a religious life or to follow the teaching of Jesus Christ, to earn the merit to come into the presence of God, is to confess an ignorance of what it means to be a Christian. Those who say today... Well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to live right. I'm trying to follow the teaching of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to follow the Ten Commandments. I, I, I love the teaching of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to be an imitator of Jesus Christ. Then that is not a Christian. This is someone who is completely ignorant of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is this. We are completely unworthy to enter into the Holy of Holies. We are sinful we are unworthy to have communion with God. But in Jesus Christ, by His death, when our sin was judged in the body of Christ, it is at the very moment that He died that the veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. And God says, now you can come in because of Christ. Now, the division that existed between God and man has been done away with. The cherubim in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 is gone. The veil in the tabernacle is gone. The veil in the temple is gone. What prohibited an entrance for us into heaven is gone. The enmity has been taking, taken out of the way. 
The application is this for us. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you would read through the book of Hebrews, you'd find that those people who had professed faith in Christ were struggling. Uh, many struggles are mentioned throughout uh, this letter of Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 10, he says in verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us, What's the next few words? Draw near. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. You see, if this is true, if this is true, then here's the invitation for us. Let us draw near. Do you, 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 you remember the alternative? You cannot come in. If you come in, you die. Because you're, you're not worthy. You see, God cannot abide sin. God cannot abide you. We are utterly and completely worthless at enmity with God, full of sin and wickedness, and God cannot let us in. But in Christ... Our sin has been judged in the person of Christ. Entrance has been granted. And now we can come in boldly. And so he says, let us draw near. The problem then for us as Christians, if we are, if we've been brought in by the blood of Christ, the problem is not that access has not been granted. The problem is that we are not drawing near. If we have access in Christ, then why would we not draw near? The whole point here, he's telling these believers, they're struggling in life. And he's saying, you're not drawing near. You are struggling with your own problems by yourself. You claim the name of Christ and you face persecution and you're discouraged and you're dealing with suffering, but you're not drawing near. You have access, but you're not taking advantage of the access. You can have communion with God, but you're not coming to have communion with God. And I see a God who did all of this. What a shame. For a God who did all of this, who went through this process of redemption for us in this whole revelation, it's unfolding before us. And now it's complete. We have the full. But it was a process as it was developing. The God who did all of this for us, who has given us access, and we spend so much time away from God. What a shame. We have problems, and we bring our problems to everybody else except God.
We're struggling in life. We're looking for some new blog or some new insight instead of coming to God. We, 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 we have struggles in life and we, we face difficulties and, and all of a sudden we think, well, well uh, why am I going through those difficulties? He says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. The message is simple tonight. If you're a Christian tonight, you have access. By the way, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you think that living a good life is what makes you a Christian, you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. If you think studying the Bible and looking at all the beauty of Jesus Christ makes you a Christian, that does not make you a Christian. If you think coming to church makes you a Christian, it does not make you a Christian. If you think being a member of this church makes you a Christian, you are not a Christian. The only way you can be a Christian is by the blood of Jesus Christ is by recognizing that you're utterly sinful and refuse to God. But in Christ, you can be accepted. So if you are accepted and you are a Christian in Christ, do you draw near consistently? And, and what I mean by that is, is, I'm not asking if you come to church. Certainly that's a way we can draw near to God together. But in your time of need is the first person you think of is the first person your mind goes to that you need to go to is it God if it is not if he's option three or four or five or down the road then something is out of place let us take full advantage of what we have in God